are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... Kendra Holtmore, Assistant Professor of Religion at Bethany College, and my favorite TV show of all time is Avatar The Last Airbender. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and my favorite TV show of all time is Doctor Who. Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte. And I got a lot of TV shows that kept popping up, but the one that just keeps coming to mind right now, I would say, is probably Ted Lasso. Rachel Jackson, Rabbi Agudas Israel, Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina, and favorite TV show of all time is The Big Bang Theory. Yes, that's a good one. It's a good one. Um, and this question is sort of a, you know, a little bit of an in and an intro to what we're talking about today because it's our favorite TV show of all time. And that's what we're going to be talking about today nice. is thanks. Like nice segue. Very smooth. Um, <laughs> I like that. It's even I'm smoother really when we point right. it out. <laughs> so we are talking about time. Um, and unlike the, the last two episodes where we uh, actually, I think at this point, we'll have three episodes where we've talked about time. Um, I wanted to talk about more of a corporeal human time and the experience and really just add the Jewish lens to this. Um, we were saying before we really started recording that um, while I love being Jewish and I have no problems talking about it and sharing it, I don't use that and present that as the lens. But that's really where my focus is going to be today, um, because that's how I really understand time and its meaning. And so I'm going to give several examples of what that's going to look like. But I want to start with sort of a poetic read. Um, this comes from reformjudaism.org. They have a blog series, and this comes from almost 10 years ago, but the time doesn't matter. Um, and words like this get held thanks to social media and the internet. We can listen to them 10 years from now or 10 years from when it was written till now. Um, so but just giving it a little bit of a frame. This was written by Stacey Zizuk Robinson, um, so she died um, not, too, not too long ago, and she died of COVID, unfortunately. Um, but she's an incredible author and incredible poet. And so this is what she tells us. When my son was born, I cradled him against my heart. Arms wrapped gently, yet surely around his small and fragile body. I would stand, holding him. Our breaths mingled, our hearts beating in an elegant call and response. One beat to the next, and I would sway, a slow and gentle side-to-side -side rock that lasted for the eternity that exists between heartbeats. I could feel his body relax into the motion, like oceans like drifting, like peace. I love the simplicity of that rhythm, the warmth of him, the smell of his newness and his infinite possibilities. As he drifted, as he gentled, my own body would react in kind, and I followed him. These moments became our own Fibonacci sequence, the delicate curve of our bodies in motion, at rest, in motion again, 
twined in an eternal spiral, more intimate than a lover's kiss, repeated again and again and again. There's so much time that passes. Now this is me. That is the end of what I'm going to share of hers for now, at least verbatim, um, but I'll reference a little bit that too. There's so much time that passes in a heartbeat. If you ask someone, how long does this take? There cannot possibly be a single answer. It depends well, what were you, how are you getting there? <laughs> how old were you? How long has COVID lasted? <laughs> right? <laughs> technically speaking, technically, I can remember March of 2020, March 9th, we did Purim. Right, this is how I, I'm wound in Jewish time right now. So we did Purim and we had these inklings and there was something happening to the west, to the east of us and something in a different country. And we weren't quite sure what was happening. And we did Purim and then we didn't come back to the sanctuary for 15 months. We didn't open the building for 15 months. And that's still been, that was still nine months ago. And here we are. My son, uh, seven years old, finally got vaccinated in December. And there's still people here on this podcast and here who are listening whose children have not yet been able to be vaccinated. So how long is this pandemic? It's still going on. Purim for us is in three weeks. We'll be back in our sanctuary together and we'll be wearing our masks because that's what Purim is about, wearing masks. The problem is we'll be wearing two masks, the ones over our nose and our mouth and the one over our eyes, uh, the ones that is a costume and the one that is for protection. So how long is COVID? My son was in kindergarten when he got sent home and he was at home in first grade and he did virtual in second grade. And when I went and saw him this morning for <clears throat> STEM week show and tell, he was in his classroom, five feet away from all the other students, still wearing his mask, just like they all did, not having any play dates because it's COVID. So how long is COVID for him? His whole life. He doesn't know times before COVID existed. That wasn't part of his memory. How long is COVID for me? Meh. A very, very long time, but something that I can see a life before and a life after. Because time, while quantifiable, is meaningless if we only use a clock. We have to use a relative understanding of time and how we relate to it. And in Judaism, it's, I find it so beautiful that we create time. So let me ask you, the three of you, when is Hanukkah? <laughs> right before Christmas. Oh, right before Christmas. Okay. <laughs> the, the winter season. Uh, winter season. Yes. Okay. Typically. What's, in, the, what's the date? Uh, is this a trick question? 
No. Typically, in, but the date's never the every same. Every day, all the time. In the <laughs> in the <laughs> <laughs> what if we lived every day like it was Hanukkah? Is that what you're saying? Today is a miracle. <laughs> Clean up your stuff. Rededicate yourself to, to your people and your God. And mm, slaughter some Seleucids. And don't forget to pick up the the pig guts. Like, that's just messy. Could we not? <laughs> that's right. Get no, that no. out of there. So when is Hanukkah? December. Actual. Real. True. When? I mean, it's different every yeah, year, right? It's a lunar yeah. calendar? The 25th no? of Kislev. You're giving me looks. It's the 25th of Kislev. Oh. That's the same every year. The 25th of Kislev. It doesn't change. I know exactly when it is. But does it change according? It only changes from my yes. perspective. Right. <laughs> it only changes from our perspective. Calendar. Because the majority of our calendar is the Gregorian calendar, not mm-hmm. the Jewish calendar. So when is Hanukkah? In December. Ish. This last year, it was in November. This coming yeah. year, it's going to overlap with Christmas. And if we thought it was bad last year where there was nothing Hanukkah, nothing's going to happen this year because Christmas will win out. There will be not even an inkling mm. of Hanukkah wrapping paper. That's so sad. Um, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, so when is it? Well, it depends whose perspective you're asking. And it depends how excited you are. I don't really care that much about Hanukkah. It's kind of a tiny little nothing holiday. I'd only get excited because I have a child. Um, right? <laughs> we have the same question of when is Passover? When is Purim? When is Rosh Hashanah? I have an exact date for when those things are. But that's not how I live my life. When is Shabbat? The Israeli calendar is marvelous. I love it. So Jews are terrible at naming things, like absolutely terrible. (laughs) Imagine if all of our holidays in America were named similar to July 4th. Like if you didn't (laughs) know and you came into America and everyone's like, "Woohoo! it's July 4th. And you have no idea what that means. It, it's, it's just a date on the calendar, right? It doesn't tell you, oh, it's Independence Day. It's Memorial Day. It's Veterans Day. It's President's Day. You know what the day is. Almost all of the Jewish holidays are Tisha B'Av, the 9th of Av, Tu B'Av, the 15th of Av, Tu B'Shvat, the 15th of the month of Shavat. Like, this is not helpful. Except for some <laughs> biblical holidays where... Um, you know, Rosh Hashanah isn't actually called Rosh Hashanah. Uh, Yom Teruah, the day of the sounding. It's the day you get to go make noise with a kazoo. <laughs> Marvelous. <laughs> um, so when we name the days of the week, we don't use Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, right? Those are Greek and Roman gods. Those are mm. not the days of the week. It's Yom Echad, Yom Sheni, Yom Shlishi, Yom Arba'a, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, and <laughs> Shabbat. We don't say Yom seven. We don't say the seventh day. We say Shabbat. It is different in and of itself because our frame of reference is not that it's Saturday. Our frame of reference is that this day is completely set apart from all other days. When we look on our calendars as Americans, 
we look on the calendar and go, okay, Monday through Friday, those days are particular. And then, oh, Saturday, Sunday, that's what we're gearing for. We frame our mind differently because of our response to time. One other sort of piece that I want to add for how we then mix time. So I've only been talking about my time, right? I, in this day and age, am looking forward to, you know, this next upcoming Purim or this upcoming Pesach or this upcoming Shabbat, right? Like we're recording this on a Friday and I'm going, oh boy. I have to lead services in five hours and I haven't written my sermon. Oh boy, (laughs) right? That's so exciting. So how do I, how do I understand that time? It's like not just freaking out that it's five hours from now and I haven't finished my sermon or started it. Um, (laughs) Shh, don't tell people. (gasps) (laughs) But... When I think about Passover, which is the story of the Jews leaving Exodus, or leaving Egypt in the Exodus, and we can talk in chat, we can chat on on our Facebook groups about how literal we might take that, right? That's not the conversation that we're going to have at this moment, though. Did did the Exodus actually happen? Um, So that's not going to be part of my conversation. But there is the question of... um, Not the question. I shouldn't frame it that way. When we celebrate Passover and commemorate the Exodus, there are four children. Woohoo! The wise child, (laughs) the simple child, the child who is so simple they do not even know how to ask, and then the wicked child. Okay. (laughs) So... If the wise, the, the wise child says, tell me all about this and what is the purpose of these greens and what is the purpose of this and ask all these questions, what do you think the wicked child is? Non-rhetorical. <laughs> there's no wrong answers here. <laughs> I, 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 I feel like there's a few wrong answers. No, I mean, I went first a, last there time. is a right answer, but there's no wrong answers. Okay. Okay. Because I'm thinking an Egyptian child would be pretty bad, but that's probably not the answer you're not looking so much for. Zach. Kendra. Uh, so I'm trying to remember because I've been to a few Seder. Right, because you've been to a few Sederim. Yeah. Um, and the wicked child, when we go around the table, nice. there's always like a handful of people that are like, I think I'm the wicked child. And so, <laughs> but I'm trying to remember because I think I, there's a couple that I get confused, but isn't the wicked mm-hmm. child the one who like asks? too many questions or just is like a little bit uh, like out of the status quo of how they like think and problem solve. And so they're more disruptive, um, which is not, you know, I mean, it's like the wicked mm-hmm. child, but it, in different contexts, it's not necessarily about like being good or bad. It's just different. Okay, that, kind of. You're kind, kind of, of mixing several of them in together. Yeah, there's two that I'm always like mm-hmm. mixing up. So the wise one is the one who's always asking the questions. This is what we want, right? Yay, asking questions. The wicked one asks but a single question. And he says, what does this have to do with me? Mm. Okay. Yeah. Whoa. 
And when we read the text, when we go through the Haggadah and we, we read, we ask, we say, my father was a wandering Aramean. Okay, spoiler alert, my dad wasn't. My dad was born in Australia. Like, he was not a wandering Aramean. <laughs> but we say it in the present tense. God took me out of Egypt with an outstretched hand, blah, 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 right? I was there. I wasn't was there. I am there. I am going through this. And when we sing the same song, who is like you, O mighty one? Micha mocha ba'elim Adonai, who is like you among the gods? Who, who is this? Who took me out of this place? Who is taking me through redemption? Again, not going through the theology piece here today, just looking at time. Well, that exists in the Bible, that exists in the Torah. That was theoretically, you know, 3,300 years ago. I wasn't there. I'm only 41. <laughs> but I was there. This is my story. This is my understanding of how time works, that it's now. So even though it happened at one point, I was there and I am now and it is now. So that there's a meshing of, while I might be looking at particular days in particular ways as how am I going to write my sermon and what am I going to have for dinner and who am I going to dress up as for Purim, right? Am I going to be Vashti this year or am I going to be, I'm always a good character, by the way, always. Um, I'm never the evil one. <laughs> I think that's fitting. <laughs> Thank you. I think so too. Yeah. Um, now, if Adam were here, who would he be? Yeah, he'd be Haman. Okay. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt, he'd be. Or he'd be the guys that um, Mordechai spies eavesdrops on, where he's, the, he's kind of there, but he's not really there, but he's totally a bystander. No, I love Adam. He's mm -hmm. much more of an upstander than any of those characters. He's just he's not, not here. here. So he's easy to pick on. Mm. Um, so time is not just what am I doing? It's about how do I go back and forth? And so my final thing as I'm just like rambling at y'all, is I understand time, Jewish time specifically, and my, uh, my life living a Jewish life as a slinky. So imagine you're slinky. And I hope you've had the chance to play with a slinky recently because they're awesome. Um, and it's closed. So imagine a closed slinky. And you're at the very start and you just go down one rung. It doesn't feel like anything has changed. It's the same time as last year. You're the same person that you were last year. Not a whole lot's been different. But now imagine you're a slinky on a stair and how far the distance is between one rung and the next rung when it's opened like that. It's so much different, but it's the same time. So it, it allows us to come back together and allows us to check in with ourselves and say, okay, I've been here before, but I'm completely different or I'm not so different. And just ask those questions. So that's my sort of brief, very long sort of drush on what time looks like and how we understand it corporeally. The, the thing that I 
I keep thinking of um, as you're talking about. I mean, it wasn't really like the central piece of what you're saying, but ta- like thinking about time in Judaism. I, I'm blanking on the name of the 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 book or like the essay that um, Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote mm-hmm. about like time. Uh, it's like the the tabernacle of time, where like in Judaism, what is like you can think of architecture as marking something off that is holy. And you know, like if you go to like a cathedral, like a Catholic cathedral or something, there's way of using materiality to mark off space as designated like holy locations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, Abraham Joshua Heschel um, published. A, a collection of like essays talking about how in Judaism we have these really beautiful examples of uh, you know not not so much like architecture marking off holy space but Shabbat as like a marker of holy time and it's like you mm-hmm. know he's like using the metaphor of like the tabernacle of time I think is what he, he calls it and so that's what I kept thinking about because it's such a like the the rhythm of Shabbat being you know it's not just this uh you know it, it's more than just like something you take for granted every week as a, like a celebration or like a time of rest but heschel just talks about it in this really beautiful way as being uh like a marker to orient you to time itself as this mm-hmm. special special thing that is uh it, it's it's part of our rhythm of you know, our bodies and our communities and our calendars. And I just love that metaphor of like a tabernacle of time um, in addition to, or as a, a different thing from like a, a tabernacle in space. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, so I think the essays that you're referring to are um, contained in a book called The Sabbath. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> straightforward straightforward <laughs> again we don't really you know mince our titles very much <laughs> you want to talk about time the sabbath so one of the things that heschel talks about and is actually in pretty much all jewish books that talk about the tabernacle or let's just use English, uh, a sanctuary, a church, a synagogue, the place that you go. Um, it doesn't matter. And that's, I know we talked a little bit about this a year ago, maybe two years ago when we're really talking about COVID and not being in our spaces and how that really isn't as challenging for Jews as it is for other cultures and other religions, because while we like our space, we don't define holiness by the space. Our holiness is, devi- is um, defined solely by time, which means it can happen anywhere. It can be in the wilderness. It can be with ice cream. It can be with your child. It can be in a sanctuary. It can literally be anywhere. And that sacredness of time as opposed to sacredness of place um, is something, you know, that I love about Judaism. I'm not going to say it doesn't exist in other religions, A, because I don't know all other religions, B, because I think that's um, 
a little too narcissistic as as a culture to say that we're the only ones that do it. Um, but it does feel that it really doesn't matter where we are. It's about when we are. So much so, um, I'm going to poke fun of us for just a second. Um, there are these rules that you, there are things you can't do on Shabbat, right? Like you can't turn on light switches and you can't create a fire and you can't drive and you can't cook and you can't ride an elevator. And I could keep going on and on about the, sorry, Jews, some of the extremely ridiculous things that we do in the name of Jewish law halacha. But one of them that's been around for a long time is fire, because we've had fire for a very long time. And so we're not supposed to light the Shabbat lights. Like fire is not, fire is prohibited. You can't do that on Shabbat, but you have to light Shabbat candles. So how do you do that? Like, how do you light Shabbat candles on Shabbat? We fool ourselves. (laughs) We fool ourselves. It's beautiful. So what we do is we strike the match, we light the lights, we then cover our eyes, say the blessing, open our eyes and go, look at that, (laughs) the candles are lit and now it's Shabbat. (laughs) It's amazing. Whatever. (laughs) Right. Okay. So if you ever see somebody, right, I'm sure when you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, there's these sections when they're doing the Sabbath prayer, right? May the Lord protect and defend you. That whole thing. Seriously, nothing. I'm looking at the three of you and there's no recognition there. Mm -mm. It's amazing. A little bit. It's been a long time. I've seen it a long time ago. Sorry. (gasps) Kendra, that's your homework. That is your homework. So anyway, so she's they're blessing their family and they like do this whole like waving the candle flames and then they cover their eyes and they say this beautiful blessing. Um, It's because we're fooling ourselves of when that happened, which leads me to Mm. sort of another question for you all. If we're looking at what time is. Who decides who decides? So let's use Shabbat as an example. Um, in modern America, secular America, um, most Jews are not halachically religious um, in the sense of, OK, Shabbat is when the sun goes down and I have to be home and I'm not doing like, et cetera, et cetera. Most Jews in America are not that way. And so when is Shabbat? At our particular synagogue right now, we're having services at 530 on Friday night and um, And in three weeks, when we go through a time change, it's still going to be bright outside when we leave and we're done with our service. Right. Mm. So we then have to say, well, when is Shabbat? So when is something actually happening? When we say it's happening, when we engage in activity, when the culture says it's happening, like when is or If we take also the majority of Jews, uh, I shouldn't say majority, many Jews, never. They don't observe Shabbat. So is Shabbat Shabbat because we observe it is or is it just a Saturday? So I'd ask the same question. There's some quantum stuff. Yeah. So I'm asking that question again, using Shabbat as the example or the Sabbath as the example. But for anything, is it your birthday? Right. Again, we're all adults here. 
My birthday is technically March 2nd, because that's the day that I was born. I have four meetings <laughs> on March 2nd, and it's a Wednesday. I'm celebrating my birthday on March 1st. So when is my birthday? When should somebody say to mm. me, happy birthday? When do I open my cards? All of March. All of March. <laughs> that's, that's what I do. <laughs> like, my, my birthday is on April 3rd. And this year it's a... Uh, it's a Sunday, so I'm good. But even like when my birthday's on a day that I have class, oh, I tell my students. I let them know. <laughs> just want y'all to know next week's my birthday. Just just saying. We'll see how class goes. <laughs> so at the time of recording, and this obviously is going to go out in a, a couple of weeks, there's something similar going around in Christian circles. Um, you may have seen in your Facebook feeds that this one priest had been baptizing children incorrectly. Yes. He said one word wrong. He had, instead of saying, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he had been saying, we now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We instead of I. We instead of I. Um, and through a number of higher-ups having councils and discussing whether or not this actually changed the intent of the baptism itself, they decided that enough had been changed in the intent behind that word change that it invalidated every baptism he had done for 20 mm -hmm. years. Um, because the congregation present does not do the baptism. So their affirmation of it is irrelevant. Um, according to the Catholic theology, God is the one that does the act, the actual like sanctifying grace disposing act on dispensing, not disposing <laughs> act onto the child. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no disposing of children, please. We got um, rid of that theology. And the priest is the conduit by which that happens. And so the I in that sentence is the priest speaking through God. And so by saying we, then you're just, it, it muddies the waters a little bit. And the priest has resigned and he has offered to rebaptize anyone who feels that their baptism is no longer valid because technically it's not valid anymore. And in all of the circles that I run in, which were all Protestant circles, we were all people who were like, hey, nothing magical happens here. Um, our act of baptism is that it is not something that is happening in that moment. Nothing changes about that person in that moment. What is happening is it is a, an a outward affirmation of an inward and invisible reality that a child is born beloved already. A child is born already a part of the family of God. A child is born already having been awash in God's grace and mercy and goodness. And the act of baptism is an act in which the community gathers together to affirm that truth that already existed time immemorial. And so whether that child is baptized on the day they're born or when they're 99 years old, <laughs> Um, whether it is done using the right magic words mm -hmm. or some other totally different vernacular. This is not um, 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 a, a bad thing. Um, this is a good thing for me. I made something of the way goes a giant castle. 
I can't wait to see your giant oh, castle. Me too. Okay. Could you hear what I he said? I want to see his giant castle. Did he say the banjo's not a bad thing? It's a good thing? He says this a is not thing. a bad emergency. This is a good emergency. I made a giant castle. That's, that's important, Dad. That's so sweet. <laughs> and I'll be up in a few minutes to come see it, okay? You gotta work on your okay. definition of emergency. <laughs> and his timing. I, I say one thing, and that's when he descends into the basement and comes and plays the banjo in the back of this little studio. <sighs> And you were on such a roll, too. My train of thought was, well, so. (laughs) So regardless if you're zero or You know, it's almost ironic, though, (laughs) that my child were to come in here. When talking about baptism? During the time in which I'm talking about, in which um, God has granted God's blessing onto children Uh before they were born and before they had a chance to identify it or have it be given to them from an exterior source. Because, man, oh, man. We need to be reminded of that sometimes when you are in the middle of something like recording a podcast and your four-year-old decides to play a banjo in the room you're, you're recording it in because that child has already been awash in God's grace and goodness and forgiveness. And I, too, have been awash in that very same spirit. And then we need to learn how to honor and forgive and appreciate the toddler's giant Lego castle he wants me to see. Um, But the point being, in their theology, there was a particular moment in which grace was dispensed in a special way from God onto that child. It can happen one time. You cannot be baptized again. Um, In fact, they they murdered quite a bit of Anabaptists in the uh, Reformation because of that. There's one time only that it can be done. Um, And when you believe that there's one time only that this can be done, then there's a whole lot of now stricter rules that have to come with it. And the ramifications for this, like I, I saw the headline and read a little bit about the situation with this, you know, the Catholic priest um, making an error mm-hmm. with the use of the, in the word we instead of I. And, you know, I, I didn't spend too much time reading an article about it, but it just seemed like that there was, there's some speculation, I guess, that this could have bigger impacts depending on how the whoever the powers that be decide on the rules right like um like if you're not baptized considered baptized can you get married in the church the catholic church or there are certain rules that you cannot like you have to be baptized catholic to be able to do certain things in catholic churches i thought or something along not to be married. No, at least one of you has to be Catholic, but you can be baptized Protestant and still be married in a Catholic church as long as one of the other ones Catholic. You can't and take you promise to raise your children communion, Catholic. Right. You can't take communion. No. Okay. But if you promise to raise your child as a Catholic, then they will let you be married in a Catholic okay. church. Yeah. But anyway, I just remember seeing that and just being amazed by it. Right. And, and and I appreciate that you brought that, that piece in, Zach, because it's really talking about when does something happen, right? When, yeah, when does it happen? I, I mean, there are a few, mm-hmm. there are a few moments in life that give us those very definite, this is when it happened. When are you born? Well, let's, <laughs> hmm. Let's just go with the medical piece there, right? When you exit the womb, right? That's that's when you're born. When, but when the head exits the well, womb? Well, because some children are not born head first. 
right? right. So, you know, but when someone puts on their birth certificate, what time were you born? Right? It's when you scream. Right? That's what time you're born. When you scream. So your head's got to be out, whether or not that was first or not. But you have to scream, and mm. that's when you're born. Now, modern medicine... That feels yeah, appropriate. Modern medicine... When you, know, you are first alive yeah, when you scream. Exactly. <laughs> you know, that all happens within a minute, right? Even with even with babies, or especially with babies that are not born head first. Right? They're just out. Um, uh, Rachel, I have a question for you about religious yeah. time. So as we're, as we're talking, I'm remembering a concept... Um, from I think I had first read it in something written by uh, Mircea Eliade. I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation of his name, um, about the importance of an axis mundi in, in religion, the center of the world, as it were, um, and that in, say, older um, Israelite religions, um, that was the temple on Mount Zion. That was the the place that connected the underworld with the heavens, that that sort of central location to the world. And every religion has that, right? That's that's Mount Olympus, that's um you know, all the holy mountains usually in the ancient world. Um and then the temple's gone in seventy AD and the people are scattered both Christian and Jewish people scattered to the winds. And the Christians later do find other centers at that point, right? In Rome, especially, becomes our center forever and what becomes the Vatican and all of that. Um, the, the Jews don't get a center for, you know, arguably even now don't really have a center, at least religiously, Um Christians seem to have then gone back to their being physical spaces, physical centers, as opposed to the temporal centers. Um, as, but what, from what I hear you talking about, the Sabbath kind of becomes the temple. Um, does that does that track with kind of the the history of the development of the two religions? I think so. And you're, um, I think, from a. Um point of interest, you very much like Second Temple times, right? That's that's where that's where you thrive. Um, personally, <laughs> personally, yes. yes like, you, like that's just sort of you, you really gravitate toward that time period. Um, that is my least favorite time period in Judaism. Um, <laughs> Why so is that? Um, and, and remind, you know, myself and those of us who are not familiar with the time frame, you know, calendar you. time frame, yearly time frame of, of what? Thank you. Era uh, first about. temple, first temple was destroyed 586 BCE. Uh, the Jews were then allowed to come back 60 years later, reconstructed it, reconstructed the temple plus or minus 520 BCE. Um, it was then destroyed 70 CE. Um, and so second temple is considered, you know, 520 BCE to 70 CE. By the way, I'm using CE as common era or before common era. Zach mm-hmm. used AD, which um, translates to year of <laughs> our Lord, which is pretty common. Um, or BC, you know, t- typically understood as before Christ. And so for those that do not use Christ as a center point in time, 
Um, Mm. But we still need to communicate that this is the year 2022. We just have communicated as BCE and CE. Um, It also is a little problematic that Jesus was likely born between three or four BC. So Jesus was born before I I use, but I I mean, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I was born before I became something too. So, so why don't you like that period of time? Um, so just generally speaking, I, I find that there's just, um, it's uncomfortable for me Mm. because it feels very infighting and that's too reminiscent of today. Um, as far as Jews are concerned, I think that there's a lot of us and them within the Jewish world nowadays, just like, and, and I see that as an us and them when we look at second temple times. That's true. Um, right? Hanukkah started as a Jewish civil war. And I, I just don't, it, I don't like that. It just, it just makes me too sad, frankly. That's yeah. why I don't like it. It makes me too sad. When did the split and then the, happen um, with the Northern Kingdom? The diff- What split? Oh, that was, um, so the United Kingdom, again, if we look at this from a literal standpoint, the United Kingdom was 1000 BCE. Um, and it was only united for three kings. Mm-hmm. So really not very long. Um and then the 10 tribes were theoretically lost, also known as probably the leaders got taken away and they got split up because, you know, bigger, better competitors came along. And that was 722 uh-huh. BCE. Um, yeah. So very, so, very different you know, time period. This sort of civil war is totally different. There's the influence of the Greeks after Alexander comes through, which uh, there's a whole Hellenizing aspect of of that region and then you've got the Jews in Alexandria and the Jews in Babylon and the Jews in Judea not to mention the Samaritans and the rise of Pharisees Sadducees Essenes Zealots the whole Christians the whole gamut of of splintering and it's very dramatic which might be why I like it and that's why I don't (laughs) yeah it's too much. It's like, are you reform or conservative? Well, I'm reconstructionist and I'm humanistic and I'm orthodox, but modern orthodox, but open <laughs> orthodox, but just regular orthodox, just ultra orthodox. And you're not even Jewish to me. And it's just, but it's, it's just still too much. all connected to the same um, God. Right. <laughs> so I was just talking to somebody, theoretically, I was just talking to somebody about, you know, the prayer, the Shema, which comes from Deuteronomy. Um, here, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one, etc. I like it better in the Hebrew, right? Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Um, I said, well, can a person who's not Jewish say that? So, well, sure, right? It's, it's in the Bible. Lots of people say it. It's just sort of what your intent is. Um, so what does it mean for God? I said, well, it it's a statement of if you believe in up to one God. Oh. <laughs> up to it's not one a belief God. In one God. It's a belief in up to one. Um, yeah. So yes and Ian. Um but to go back to Zach's to go back to Zach's a whole point of where and when and does that track? Yes, I think that totally tracks for it's not a when. And frankly, let's look at Judaism from the scriptures itself. Where, like where, where was Judaism in the Torah? 
nowhere, which means everywhere. So the Torah was given in the wilderness. The Torah wasn't given in Jerusalem. The Torah wasn't given in Israel. The Torah was given in the wilderness. They were just wandering. They didn't know who or where they were. And that's when we get the Torah. That's quite literally what's happening in this week's Parsha, Kitisa. Like th- this week, we're reading about when Moses goes up onto the mountain and God's like, here, have some stones that I carved. And Moses is like, sweet. And then God's like, you should go back down there because they made an idol out of gold <laughs> and it turned into a calf. And perhaps you should control that better. And Moses comes down and is like, are you kidding me? And hurls the tablets and all that stuff. Like, that's literally what we're reading this week. Um, So now y'all at home can check when we recorded this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So there is no place in Judaism. It's all about time. And in this exact same portion, it talks about the Sabbath. Like, this is what you should do. Um. And let me just also clarify one other piece. When I'm talking about Sabbath and we talk about rest, Hmm. we're not resting because, oh my God, the other six days are so hard. (laughs) That's Saturday. That's what a Saturday is. It's a, oh boy, I had so many meetings and so many emails and these kids are driving me nuts. Like, I just need a day. Like, that's Saturday. That's a day of rest. Hmm. Mazel tov. We all 100% need that. Shabbat is, I am not resting to recover or prepare for. I am resting simply to acknowledge that I exist now in this time. Not for what I was or what I will be. For right now. That's why Jews also still need a two-day week. Right? We still are Americans. We still need a Sunday. We need a day to just not do. Right? That's our Sunday, but that's not Shabbat. Shabbat rest is not weekend rest. It's mm. a it's a complete wholeness of right now and being connected to the text that was 3,000 years ago and 3,000 years from now, but really it's just this moment. Mm. Um, and we don't we don't need a place for that. Um, so our centrality, yeah, wherever you want to be, uh, which is why, um, shout out to Rabbi Jamie Korngold, who was the rabbi who had my did my bat mitzvah with her. She's the adventure rabbi. I've talked about her a couple of times, right? She has Shabbat on the ski slopes, right? <laughs> Shabbat on the slopes. Like you talk <laughs> about mountain, Zach, great, go skiing and then have a Shabbat together. Right? 15 minutes. Say the Shema, say a few other prayers, and go back skiing. That's amazing. <laughs> right? If it was good enough for our Israelite ancestors, it's good enough for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so some of so, the readings you sent. Um, yeah. You know, it makes me like, Fuck I want to get the whole book. First of all, you know, like mm. in, the Rejoice in Your Festival is the Jewish year sacred time in the Jewish calendar, just reading some of that about, you know, the whole, uh, it is the when and not the where of prayer that counts the most in Judaism. Judaism is a religion, indeed the first religion and by and large, the only religion that sanctifies time over space. And I just, I just find that really interesting. Mm. So it's not, 
It's not the where you do it. It's the, the time that you stop to pray. Is that right? It's not even stopping to pray necessarily. It's a time of connection, whether that's connection. And so this is why I say up to one God, because when you pray, there's this idea that you're praying to God, right? That's a very Christian right, understanding. But can, can I interrupt? Can, yeah. Do you this, mind? Yeah. Please. Always. So I guess what I just keep thinking back to the, what we continue to find ourselves in with this pandemic, right? And how, mm-hmm. you know, we, you know, the whole world obviously went, has gone through time periods, some still going through it and around the world of not being able to do like go into places of worship if they want to people, you know, places around the world where people don't worship at all. They have no faith at all in, in any kind of deity that we consider. Right. Um, but that they're still limited on where they can go. How about that? So places, you know, that's still occurring around the world and in some spaces in the U S as well. Um, and so, you know, but I remember when this first started, you know, and, and everything happened and people initially came together when everything was shut down. But then finally it was, especially in our state, Rachel of North Carolina, the, you cannot shut down our churches. You cannot shut down our churches. Like if we cannot be in our church, <laughs> then we are not able to worship. And, um, right. I did not, and still do not hold to that view. You know, I, Yes, when I go into the sanctuary of our church, um, it is a very, it has a very profound and powerful impact on me. It becomes very um, inspirational. I mean, there are many times where I start, I'll take my phone out, start writing notes and just things because it just inspires me every time I'm there Um, because I feel that connection, right? Um, But I was, I still felt to me, it was like, I think, especially with me, as one of the the lay leaders of the church of trying to help, you know, um, offer up worships, a worship service every week on on Facebook for almost a year. Um, I, I took it as like, almost like a, not a test of my faith, but as a making sure I understand, at least to me, the true meaning of all of this and the faith is that it's not necessarily in that building. That's, that's not where it should occur for me. Right. It needs to be within me, my time, my wherever I am. Right. It does not matter, I guess. And so that's why reading that just really has such a profound impact on me, because it's just like to me, that's beautiful of recognizing that it's more than the bricks and mortar that we find ourselves in. That should be bigger than that. Right. And that's, again, goes back to the whole limiting thing. And I think back to our first episode in this mini series on time. And we talked about how do we think of God and how if we think of God as within the human concept of time, how that limits the power of God um, and, you know, what God can or cannot do is greatly limited by our, our understanding of how time flows. Right. Or at least the way we think about it. And I think our connection... Yeah, and I think our connection, not again, I'm trying to keep this, I love that you keep bringing it back to God. I'm like, nah, leave God out of the conversation. Bringing it back to community Mm -hmm. and culture and connection that it's not, right? I think the building can be beautiful and I think that there can be holiness in the building, but 
where for those of us that may not have an interventionalist God concept, what was missing is that we weren't next to people. That the issue wasn't, oh, I missed seeing the bima and the ner tamid, the eternal light, and I missed being physically in the presence of the Torahs. It was that <laughs> I didn't hear the other people singing. I didn't. I didn't watch their faces as they prayed and cried and, and that was, hugged and. Yeah, that was a struggle for me with the way we did the Facebook worship and the way Facebook Live works. I cannot see the people. Right. You don't see right? the other people. But then That's also, right. too, one, one of the struggles that I dealt with, and again, it wasn't the space. It was that, as you said, the community of being together and worshiping as, as one. Right. Um, and so I started really struggling when people would, when it was just me and one other person live, knowing that, you know, people would then tell me, but Ian, you know, so many people watch the video later. You know, and, and they, they take time later, which is something to be appreciative of. But at the same time, too, it it was like, right, but I don't feel that community. Like, and it, was, it wasn't just about offering it to other people. It was also offering it to myself, right? And so I needed that community. And I, at times, didn't feel it. And that's nothing against anyone. If any of the my fellow church members go, you know, listen, that's nothing against anybody. It was just a recognition of, yeah. You. You know, Rachel, you you say that nobody in your context said that they miss seeing the Torah and miss seeing that. But in my context, in which we are much more concerned with sacred space than sacred time, we I was recording the services in my dining room for the first six months. And then after Nicole and I kind of parted ways, as it were, um, uh, I started recording services in the sanctuary and I had dozens and dozens of people tell me how comforting it was for them to see the stained glass, to see the cross, Mm -hmm. to hear the organ, Mm -hmm. to like see the things in the sanctuary they weren't allowed to be in. And I think about the people who were really excited to be able to just go to the sanctuary, like open sanctuary hours. You can come in and just sit there in the space at any time. And like that was really important for them to connect spiritually, more so than it being on a Sunday morning. Like the time was just like, that was just almost accidental. It was like a habit that it was going to be at that time. But the space is what mattered. People found it very hard to worship from their homes. Well, and, and so I want to make, you know, I want to clarify. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I want to clarify something that, you know, I still highly value that space, right? And so I, I feel exactly what you're talking about, Zach, that the very first time that Father Greg led a service from our church in our sanctuary. Shout out to Father shout Greg. Out Father Greg, one of our huge supporters, <laughs> that when the very first time Thank he God. led one from there during the pandemic, uh, it was a very powerful moment. I remember being very emotional mm-hmm. because I could see it again, right? So yes, I have that deep connection to that space. Um, but for me, what I found fascinating were those who would advocate that the only way they felt they could worship was in that space. Like that was it. And it wasn't about the words, the connection outside of that space at a different time. It was they had to be in that space or they were not actually worshiping. And I struggle with that because to me, that seems limiting. The only bit of our worship that is connected to time, specifically to time and not to space, is the act of communion or the Eucharist. Um, It is 
by its by its elements and the way it's constructed and the words that you say of institution around it, it is a, a recreation of an event that happened 2,000 some years ago that you're bringing into the present and that you are looking into the future of a, a, a final reconciliation. We, we say the words in communion uh, all together as one people, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And in that way, the act of communion acts as a sort of temporal axis mundi to use you know big old fancy words <laughs> but just like it stakes us in eternity in that moment reaching to the past being in the present pulling the future towards us but aside from the act of communion we are all about space and we all care about mm -hmm. time so i am i have learned so much from you rachel today and i've gleaned so much wisdom from you in in this time y'all didn't struggle the same way we did during the beginning of the pandemic. You struggled in different ways, right. but not in the way that we struggled. Yeah, so true. I loved, I love talking about this stuff. I love uh, our ability to share and find appreciation in our differences um, and find commonalities um, and that we all are seeking to find something sacred, whether that's time or space, whether that's now or eternity. Um, so I appreciate our dialogue. Um, so welcome to a bonus edition of the Dead Christian Story Hour. I think we're going out of order a little bit, but I have one prepared today. Um, and we're not gonna ask Rachel to talk uh, more about about something and ian has something but is going to save it until the next time because and you'll see why then it's going to be great so i'm going to go out of order because i have a fun story to share with you today about a dead christian that i think is great so our story today takes place in the little community that St. Francis had put together um, sometime in the early 1200s, late 1100s, somewhere in there in Assisi in uh, Italy. Um, they were a wild and crazy group of people who left society because they thought it was getting too... Uh, too rich, too wealthy, too disconnected. They were... Um, they ran away from their, their family's prosperity, from all of the, the wars and all of the stuff that was happening. And they went out and they made their own communes out in the middle of the, of the woods, in the fields. And they lived this peaceful, happy sort of a life. And they had some wild stories that are contained in a book called The Little Flowers of St. Francis. And now, like all good hagiography, this takes this, you take this with a grain of salt because... All of our stories about our heroes of faith have a little bit of a comic book sort of a bend to them. So this story, there was a there was a, a, a good fellow named Brother Rufino. My brother Rufino was in the woods and he was praying fervently. And suddenly Jesus Christ appears in front of him. He's got the holes in his hands and all that stuff. He's like, look, it's me. It's JC. I'm here to talk to you. And Brother Rufino's like, wow, what is great? This is great. This is the guy. This is the guy we're always talking about. And he's right here and he's got something to say to me. And so Jesus opens his mouth and says to him, oh, Brother Rufino, why do you afflict yourself with penance and prayer since you are not among those predestined to eternal life? Believe me, because I know whom I have chosen and predestined and don't believe in that son of Pietro, that's St. Francis. 
if he should say the opposite. And you know what? Don't even ask him about this matter because neither he nor others know it, but only I know because I'm the son of God. Therefore, believe me, you are certainly among the number of the damned. And the son of Pietro, this again is St. Francis, your father and also his father, they're all damned as well. And whoever follows him is being deceived. So Brother Rufino at this point, he just met Jesus and Jesus just told him he's damned to hell. And sorry, dude, that's just the way it goes. And don't tell anyone about this, by the way. So kids, if you're listening out there and a grown-up tells you don't tell anyone about this, that's a red flag. So he, <laughs> he goes off and he's so sad and he's so despondent and he says, oh, I knew it. I knew it all along. I am an imposter. I really, I don't belong here. Everyone else is so much more righteous than me and I am damned from the start. But God's like, uh, I saw that. I saw that sneaky thing there. And tells St. Francis, hey, the devil just showed up. He was wearing my clothing and is pretending to be me. I need you to go talk to Brother Rufino. So St. Francis goes to Brother Rufino and he says, hey, look, I know what you just saw. That's not Jesus. You can always tell it's Jesus because of the sorts of things he says. That's the kind of words that the devil would say. Brother Rufino is like, wow, really? All right, if you say so, I'm just a dude, and you're you're St. Francis. So St. Francis says to him, go back out to the woods, and when this imposter Jesus shows up to you again, I want you to say these words to him verbatim. You say, hey, open your mouth again, and I'm going to take a shit in it. And I, I'm going to bleep that out, but that is, no, your King don't. Jamesian translations may say, I shall expel dung upon thee or something like that. But no, <laughs> it's a four letter word. So Brother Rafina goes out into the woods again. And then, um, you know, Jesus, the fake Jesus shows up to him again and he says, I thought I told you to go home. You are a damned soul. You have no place being here. What on earth are you even doing trying to pray? Stop wasting your time. And Brother Fina goes, look, I'm going to let you finish. But first, open your mouth again, and I'm going to take a shit in it. And the devil, at that point, he just busts out of his Jesus costume. And he's like, you found me. How dare you speak to me like that? And he basically explodes and flies off into the distance and knocks the top of a mountain off. And there's this massive earthquake in like all of the region that everyone reported hearing and seeing and a huge landslide that came down off of that mountain that other people saw and can attest to and totally definitely happened and was because the devil was so offended by Brother Rufino um, because he caught him in his uh, in his traps. And uh, that is the story of how Brother Rufino <laughs> caused an earthquake and a landslide and destroyed the top of a mountain because he talked back to the devil. Oh. That's amazing. Hooray! Very good. That's it.